Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the British English Podcast. For today's episode, we got the spectacles out and did some reading around the topic of the English country house. And when I say we, I mean me and Ben Marks. Let's go with the historian that lives down under. Ben has been on the podcast before. We talked about the Great Fire of London and we also did a Harry Potter based episode. But for today's one, Ben actually suggested that we dive into the world of the exclusive, the insanely wealthy and most likely incredibly posh sounding people who had the keys to the great English country houses. This is going to be a history heavy episode, but as always, we will try to keep it conversational. I'll let Ben lead this as he has a plethora of knowledge in his noggin about this. I've done about a day's research, if that, on this, so I will try to keep up. But to steal one of Ben's facts, even before we say hello to him, I wanted to set the scene with some stats to help you better understand the significance of these homes and why we are talking about them today. Uh, these homes required a huge amount of servants or people who worked in and around the grounds of these huge homes. And as an industry, Domestic service, or being in service, as it was called, was the largest single employer in Britain in its peak, which I imagine still affects our culture today, such as the language we use, the dialects we have, and the class based system that still lingers. And a pretty mad stat to set the scene as well is that I heard a historian mention that there are about 10,000 English country houses. Currently, I double checked that though and found it to be like 3,000 today, but upwards of 5,000 back when they were more popular, which Ben can perhaps start us on with a rough timestamp of when these houses were built. But according to his, this rather excitable American historian that I was listening to, an English country house was always the center of a cultural estate which had about three to 5,000 acres of land, which again, I thought was ridiculous. So I checked that and it was more like 500 to 1,500 acres of land, depending on who you believe. Maybe we should take what I say with a pinch of salt and uh, listen to the real historian across the table from me. So uh, yeah, let's do that right now. Uh, the guy from Down Under, known as Ben Marks. How are you doing as well today, sir? Uh, not too bad, Charlie. Thanks for that intro. That was very kind. I don't. I wouldn't classify myself as a full-on historian, but I, I like to think that I know a bit. I thought we would talk about this as a topic today. We talked about the Great Fire of London last time, uh, but I thought we would talk about this today because it's a very iconic part of Britain, the Great English Country House. Ah, oh, hello, sir. Welcome to the British English Podcast Bed and Breakfast. How can I help you? Oh, yes, I'd, uh, I'd like to check in early, please. I have a reservation under the name of Mr. Smith, and uh, I'd like to listen to the podcast for free. Certainly. And would you like a turn-down service and a complimentary worksheet with your stay? P pardon me? A turn-down service and a free worksheet. What, what on earth are they? Let's let's see now, shall we? A turn-down service includes getting your bedroom ready for a night of sleep. In other words, I get in your bed, roll around in it, and then get back out. Oh, and the free worksheet is available for anyone listening to the British English Podcast. You can access it by going to the britishenglishpodcast.com slash 
freebies, that's F-R-E-E-B-I-E-S, by clicking the link in the show notes of this episode, or you can download the app called the British English Podcast app. It's rather impressive, as you can listen to every single episode and see the free worksheet on the same page. Very, very useful, and as I said, complimentary usage for any of our guests. So, how's about that turndown service, eh? Fancy it? Uh, I I think I'll pass on that Thanks, but I'll definitely be downloading the app you mentioned. Yeah, where can where can I get my hands on that then? In your device's app store, sir. Search BEP for BEP or the British English Podcast. You can't miss it. Right? Yeah, brilliant. Oh, what room number am I? Room number three hundred and twenty-five, sir. Take the lift up to the third floor. Take a left, and voila, your home away from home awaits you. Right. Right. Thank you. See you tomorrow at breakfast. Sleep well. (sighs) Don't let the bed bugs bite. Because we really do have an abundance of them on the third floor. It's one of the main things we think about when we think about Britain. When we think of the, the upper classes of Britain, these sprawling estates are what we see in TV shows and movies. We can most recently think of the famous series Downton Abbey. Yes. And and Bridgerton as well, I suppose. Bridgerton. I actually haven't seen Bridgerton. Okay. Um, it's I, basically Downton Abbey, but just more sex. Okay. <laughs> right. Well, yes, uh, Downton Abbey was distinctly lacking in that. As <laughs> actually those, uh, those houses were at the time, there was a huge effort to segregate these houses in almost every possible way. The servants were segregated from the family who lived upstairs. Right. We'll get more into that later. But the servants themselves were segregated by their rank and by their gender. The men always slept in men's quarters and the women always slept in women's quarters. And any sort of sexual relations between unmarried people was strictly forbidden in almost every single major household. And is this, we're talking about the servants or workers of the house, or are we talking also about the actual family members? Well, Well, I suppose they were (laughs) siblings, right? Yes. (laughs) <laughs> Don't yeah, touch your sister. I, I would say if you're sneaking into another, if, if you're a male in the family upstairs and you're sneaking into a female's room, it's either your mother or your sister. So, <laughs> or your probably, grandmother. Or your grandmother. Yeah, let's, well, actually, I think the grandmother, if she was of any sort of rank, lived in her own separate property, but I'm sure you could sneak out of the house in the middle of the night across there if that was your jam. <laughs> ah. Yeah. So, okay. So the, the workers weren't able to mingle at night. But yeah, let's let's go back a little bit. So yeah, sorry to go back. Uh, basically, I decided to talk about this with you today because, as I said, it was a it's an iconic part of Britain. But it's also more importantly, it's a very important part of British history and society to understand. It comes from basically the building blocks of European society. Wow, and Britain is probably. The only country in Europe today, if you consider England part of Europe, Britain part of Europe, that still largely practices these ideas of uh, the land-owning gentry. Okay. So, no other European country is situation. Not not in the same way. I mean, Britain still has many, many uh, land-owning gentry. They still have many great country houses that have been passed down from father to son, and they still have a a pretty robust system of nobility with different ranks that actually hold sway in the political life and um, political outcomes in Britain. Right. 
Wow. Okay. I was thinking of the big French homes. There's a word for them. Chateau? Chateaus, yeah. Yeah. So they are in existence. The actual structures themselves are in existence. And I'm pretty sure there are some French nobility, but they simply don't have the same impact on the country's political fortunes as the British system. Well, yeah, nice. I mean, if you're a French person and you have a chateau, please get in touch to put us straight and invite me to your chateau as well uh, to prove, of course, that they have the chateau. Yes. Yeah. So we'll, we'll have a chat about that, sort of the origins of all of that, how the houses themselves worked. As you said before, they were actually the cultural center of an entire community. They uh, were a small economy unto themselves, each house. And uh, yeah, a central part of British life for uh, several centuries. And doing some research, I saw some facts about why the houses led to be too expensive to run. But before we go further with that, I noticed that it was partly because cities were becoming more popular. And does that mean that cities, like if I imagine back, was it, was it more like everyone was spread out as a population? They were, yeah. So there was, I mean, this sort of uh, change from country to city living was primarily to do with the Industrial Revolution, which occurred in the early 1700s. Now, the Industrial Revolution had a massive impact both on the explosion of these types of houses and then the <laughs> actually the decline of the houses. But we'll go into that a little bit mm-hmm. later. Yeah. I think to begin with, how about we talk about where these houses originated from? Perfect, yes. Were they born out of a genie granting somebody a wish from rubbing a lamp? Well, some might say that. (laughs) But uh, unfortunately, for anybody listening to this podcast who wants to believe that, I'm a man who deals with facts and not fiction. (laughs) Good to get that straight. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes, Harry Potter is not real. (laughs) Sorry, I'm so sorry to anyone out there who was learning English on the British English podcast in the hope of going to Hogwarts. Yeah. It's not a real place. Yeah. He speaks the truth. Although I might just be an ignorant muggle. Yeah. I prefer that. Yeah. Yeah. I like to think that uh, JK Rowling is a squib. Do you know what a squib is? (laughs) Yeah. So a squib is an insult for a person who was born into a magical family with no magical powers. That actually works out very nicely because she was so- upset that she wasn't a wizard she th- or a witch she just decided to rat on them and tell yeah, the world yeah. of muggles She's completely about them. yeah i mean i i'm sitting here saying with full confidence that the wizarding world doesn't exist <laughs> and jk rowling's probably a squib <laughs> i feel like that's a terrible insult and i just want to call people i don't like a squib <laughs> don't look good doing that. <laughs> All right, let's uh, let's yeah. get back. We've we've done we've our done uh, Harry Potter. We've done Harry Potter. Let's get back to the Great English Country House. Let's talk about the origins. Yeah. So when did this kind of come out of an era? What era are we talking? Okay, so we're talking over a thousand years. The systems that were in place in in England uh, basically brought this about. Now, the first thing to understand about the Great Country House is that they were estates that were owned by a class of people in Britain, a high class of people, the upper classes, called the land-owning gentry. Okay. Now, in essence, breaking it down into its simplest sense, the land-owning gentry were people who were granted pieces of land by the king and they rented them out to farmers and tenants and received money for that rent. 
Right. And this land was passed down from father to son. And how did the king or queen choose who would be? Well, this all started that? and has its origins in feudal Europe. Good morning, Squire. I do hope you slept soundly. Care for some breakfast? Oh, yes, I'd, I'd, I'd love some. Uh, what's on the menu? Let's have a look, shall we? We have the buffet breakfast for premium podcast members, and we have the exclusive set menu if you're a member of the Academy. All oh, right, yeah. And, and apart from the breakfast options, uh, why would I want to be a member of the p- premium podcast, you say? Or the... The, um, uh, the... Or the Academy, sir. Yes. You see, premium members get to enjoy the buffet along with transcripts, glossaries, and flashcards to use how and when you want. Rather like the buffet if you've not cottoned on yet, Mr. Smith. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get it. I get it. Very nice, very nice. All right. So just like the buffet, I can come and go as much as I like and eat or learn, in this case, uh, in whatever way I like with the basic stuff available for me. Precisely, Mr. Smith. Very good, very good. And then the members of the Academy get everything premium members get, but more importantly, they get to experience some fine dining with a set menu or structure of lessons with videos, audios, quizzes, assignments, speaking classes on Zoom, the speaking partner program, and entry into a lottery to win one-to-one classes with Charlie, the host of the podcast this bed and breakfast is associated with. Gosh, it's a fair amount of stuff, isn't it? You don't suppose I could sample a bit of both options before I decide what to do? It's funny you should say that because we indeed have a sample sausage from the buffet along with a sample of the premium podcast over at thebritishenglishpodcast.com slash premium. And of course, we have some caviar and a full lesson to sample for the Academy over on thebritishenglishpodcast.com slash Academy. Again, All the links will be in the show notes and on that menu in front of you, sir. I will leave it with you to think over, and I do hope you enjoy yourself. Right. Yeah, thanks. Food for thought, I suppose. Now, feudal Europe is a system that was around hundreds and hundreds of years ago. So... Not thousands? No, no. I mean, we may have had the earliest origins of it then, but I mean... Without going into areas of debate, let's just put it around around the last thousand years. Okay. We could say we okay. had the start of a feudal system, you know, perhaps before that, but especially in England. Okay. Now, what that was, was basically an agreement between the king and uh, nobles who he granted land. Uh, he bequeathed them huge swathes uh, of land uh, in return for services to the crown, such as military service and management of that area, keeping it under control. Right. So if you went to battle and you did well, maybe he would reward you with a bit of land. Yeah. Or you were wealthy enough that you could afford armor and a horse and a sword. And uh, he saw you as a person who could uh, be very helpful in a battle. He would bequeath him a large swathe of land in order for the return of military service. Right. Okay. That's putting it in a very simplistic yeah. way. But in essence, they they had a deal. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, they would help defend the kingdom 
and those areas for the king in return for the this land. And under this system, this feudal system, there were basically the local lords or nobility. Mm-hmm. And then they had the local peasants. The peasants had their own separate system with the local lord where the lord would give them or rent them land and protection in return for military service to that lord. Okay. Yeah. In, okay. in essence, it was a convoluted system in order to raise an army. Right. Okay. Trying to think of the big picture of, again, where they would all live. I think I read something about it being like they're in small towns that are within castle walls. Yep. So medieval Europe and medieval England weren't the stable countries that they are today. A thousand years ago, we had places like uh, just off the top of my head, it was like East Anglia was its own small kingdom. Okay. For example. And all of these different little kingdoms had their own kings. And these kings, even within Britain, they would fight each other. And, um, Today, obviously, we have a very stabilised, very well set out boundaries in, in Europe. Well, not not always so, as we can see with Russia and Ukraine right now. But yeah. in essence, England wasn't as stable as, as it is now. So Internally. Um, yeah. Internally, yeah. yeah. And so they had to have these devices and these systems in order to protect their, their kingdoms. Now, one of the other things with this feudal system was that they used to have everyone living within castles. Now- Everyone knows what a castle is. And these medieval castles were basically huge structures which housed basically the entire locality, the entire town. It had the the king's court and, and uh, rooms of governance. It had the food stores. It had the military barracks. It had everything that you could expect to find within a small town. A lot of the peasants would live in the farmlands and, and toil, uh. the, toil the crops outside the, the castle, but the castle was a huge structure that basically encompassed a lot of that local community. Yeah. I guess when I was younger, I, I, I did go through that at school, like learning that, but I've completely forgotten about that. And when I go to see castles, I don't really think about the whole of the population being trying to fit within that fortress. Yeah, I mean, this was a thing all throughout Europe. I mean, um, one of the most famous castles that you can go in and see these days is in Salzburg in Germany. Um, this wasn't unique to Britain at all. Is that um, the one that's in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang? I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> I've never seen Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Have you not? No, is it good? It's one of those films that was was on all the time as a kid before Netflix, I suppose. Nuschwanstein Castle. Okay, that's uh, that is. I think that really famous Disney style castle. In- yes, yes, it is. Yeah, and you'll notice these castles are often uh, like Salzburg and, and that one are both on high cliff escarpments. They would find certain areas of high rock and they would build the walls around there to defend themselves. This is in the period where they had uh, bow and arrow. Uh-huh, you know, yeah. they didn't have guns and things like that. So. Um, nuclear bombs. Yeah. So they basically uh, put themselves inside an all-purpose fortress. Then, as European society stabilized under single rulers, the need for these castles lessened and lessened and lessened. And So these kingdoms now kind of relax and it's now a whole country well, where they there's all, one king? Yes. So all the or kings- Or queen. Basically, all the kings fought each other and, and one swallowed up the other and swallowed up the other and eventually- Literally. Oh yeah, yeah. These these kings used to be fifty feet tall, and oh my god, well, they would eat entire towns. Since we're talking about eating kings, uh, I found a fact that I have no, <laughs> I have no <laughs> I idea. Not, I, I am excited for this fact. <laughs> what the hell? So King Henry the Eighth, when he died, he was a very large man. 
He was apparently 400 pounds. And he was about six, six foot three or something. Okay. I mean, that's not too short, but you mean as in like a big. I believe, was, I was, believe he was a tall guy. Yeah. Okay. But still, that's overweight for a six foot three. Oh, he's very. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, so uh, he was buried or he was put in his coffin. And I don't know if you know this gross fact, but when bodies die, they they kind of enlarge like mm-hmm. the, they bloat they bloat yeah and he bloated so much that he burst and the liquids came out of the coffin <laughs> and his dogs licked them up oh god <laughs> do you ever think that if your cat like a dog right is super loyal to you and would protect you but a cat if they were the same size as us they would just kill us oh yeah they, yeah they would the, yeah. i mean no matter how much I mean, you have loved proof. them like lions and shit. Yeah, I know, but this is dom- a dom- even a domestic cat. If you know, when you're walking along, I don't know if it was just a peculiarity of my cat, but I would walk along and it would jump. It would th- like there was an instinct in it, and it would look at my foot like an antelope, and it would <laughs> sprint at high speed and just jump on it and wrap its claws all around my feet and bite into my big toe. Yeah, and then it would get into that kind of spooning position and then it would kind of kick, kick like a rabbit yeah. with its back feet. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that and would be painful. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, they'll if they were the same size as us, they would just eat us. Mm. They would, yeah. Well, that's why we don't live in the savannah. Yeah. yeah. I'm surprised uh, as humans walking around in the savannah we ever managed to to survive. Yeah. I mean, honestly. I mean, I wouldn't survive, but back then they might have. <laughs> they must have had a lot more about them. Yeah. But, but yeah, that's my fun fact about a uh, dead king. Remember that this episode, just like every single other episode on this show, comes with a free worksheet where you get to see some of the best native expressions that come up in this very episode, along with definitions made for you, a non-native learner. I've even designed it so that you can play the podcast episode on the same page as the free worksheet. It's super user-friendly, so head over to thebritishenglishpodcast.com right now and check out the free podcast worksheets or simply click on the link that says free podcast worksheets in the show notes of this episode. Yeah. Please continue. Okay. So we were up to the need for castles as a single entity. Now, as the fears of sort of endemic warfare died away, which is basically internal warfare and, and the state stabilized and became ruled under a single ruler, yeah. the need for these castles disappeared. Mm. Um, we may have needed warships and fortresses on the border to repel the invading French, for example, but- not endemic internal warfare anymore. So the need for these big castles disappeared and they split into three different entities. You had the fortress, which was the castle. Right. But now it was just purely a utilitarian fortress for defense. Okay. And they changed in shape as well because the weaponry changed. They were much lower to the ground. They didn't have these high vaulted walls. Uh, the second part of this uh, was the palace. Now, the castles used to be the residence of the king, but now the king didn't need to live in the fortress. They lived in a separate building, which was what we now call a palace. So, the Palace of Versailles, for example, these huge opulent buildings that were more for show and a comfortable lifestyle. So, did a castle turn into a fortress and a palace as two separate things or were they like it oh well, that, into- that prettier part of the castle is going to be the palace no it did separate literally into two different into two so they different- rebuilt 
Yes, they uh-huh. would eventually. I mean, there's plenty of castles still around today. I suppose they may have just either abandoned them or used just the castle as the fortress and then gone on to build big palaces as well. Yeah. And um, this is where all the princes and princesses Yeah, exactly. Live. These buildings were not about defence. They were about opulence. They were about showing everyone their right, divine right to rule, their, uh-huh. their power, and living a, the most amazing life of comfort that they could possibly ever envisage still no toilet paper though no that's right but they had servants who could do all that sort of stuff i suppose (laughs) i was once listening to a podcast by carl pilkington and uh, ricky gervais and stephen merchant where carl uh, told a story about a crazy english major who apparently said to carl's brother in the war in that, you know, if you have limited toilet paper supplies, what you do is you put your finger through the toilet, a hole in the toilet paper, scrape it all out, and then pull it out and wipe it off with the toilet paper and and walk away. And uh, (laughs) Walk away? That's just the most mental thing I've ever heard in my life. But walk away from the toilet, like proud. Just throw it away and walk away. Job done. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It sounds like something, some sort of crazy, deluded English major from the- from the early well, <laughs> 20th century, actually, would say. you're making me think of my friend from uni who admitted that he often picks his nose by taking a piece of tissue and putting a hole through it and then pretends that he's blowing his nose with tissue, but he's just picking his nose with his finger. Oh, that's mental. <laughs> that's not That's not hiding. That's... <laughs> I mean, what is that? That's like, back to cats, that's like when a cat thinks they're hiding and you can just see their tail flicking from behind the couch. I mean, that's mental. Yeah. All right. So, there was a third entity that came out of this splitting up uh, division of the traditional castle. So, we've got the fortress, we've got the palace, and then we have the manor house. Now, the manor house was the equivalent of a palace, but for the nobility. So they were never as big as the palaces for the kings and queens, but they served the same function. They showed off. They displayed to the the rest of the population their power, their wealth, and uh, it was about comfortable country living. Gave and a servant to wipe your bum. Exactly. I mean, isn't that the dream, Charlie? I mean, that's why you started this business, isn't it? <laughs> it is. I think I'm two years away from being able to do that. Why did I see uh, a dirty man scampering away when I came in here today holding a fistful of toilet paper? Uh, that was the postman. Um, oh, you've got him doing two jobs. I deliver. I, yeah, I've delivered some poo to some. <laughs> yeah, they call him the postman. <laughs> oh. No, they call you the postman. I don't like where this is going, Ben. Okay. So, so basically we had the introduction of the manor house. Now- the reason these houses were able to exist in such vast numbers was because these uh, no- noble classes had existed for so long. They still owned these huge swathes of land. They had been passed down from generation to generation to generation over hundreds of years in the last millennium. And now as Britain became stronger and stronger and at the height of its powers when trade was at its greatest, these no- noble classes were making just unfathomable amounts of money. And so, what did they do with it? They built more and more bigger and better, more opulent houses. Wow. It makes so much sense to think why people wanted to escape to America and start over and have like, you know, merit or meritocracy be the fundamental of their 
success oh as, yeah as yeah a community yeah. oh yeah i mean england i mean if you were born into the lower classes you really were always going to be in the lower classes if you were born into the aristocracy you actually there were some laws in place and strong traditions that meant you weren't going to leave that position either i mean a lot of the aristocracy didn't actually have options in what they wanted to do ah a bit like today where we see the royals aren't necessarily happy being who they are. That's exactly right. Exactly right. So part of this system was that it was bound by the British law. There was a thing called an entail. Now, that entail basically was was a law that said that these properties had to be passed from father to son or from, you know, the, the owner to the, the nearest male relative. Ah, uh, okay. Like the eldest son, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Now, this entail actually meant that it was against the law to sell these houses. So, not only were these families entitled to all of this land, but they were also, by law, unable to re- relieve themselves of this responsibility. Now, one of the things about this landowning class is, especially in this period, is they did have legions of servants and they did have these big houses, but they also had a, a responsibility. They were basically the head of a localized economy. Yeah. So they rent out land to all the local tenants. So that's farmers, bakery workers, anyone who owned a, a business. Anybody on that that land that that landed gentry owned, they paid taxes. But the landed gentry had to look after this area. They had to look after the property, which was a huge monumental task in itself. Mm. And then they had to deal with all of the local tenants as well. I mean, this is a job that they, the eldest son could not get out of. Wow. This is, I mean, it's the law. It's hard to feel sorry for them comparatively to the the people that are working for them because they're like doing, what, 18-hour shifts. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Ridiculously poor, uh, low wages. But still, yeah, no, that's hard to swallow the idea that you're forced into this huge responsibility. Yeah, I mean, they were bound to this whether they wanted to do it or not, and they couldn't sell the property, although they probably had amazing lives. I'm sure a lot of that life would have been very stifling. Yeah, yeah. Um, They didn't have freedoms that other people had. Now, comparatively as well to the, the new wealth that came out of the Industrial Revolution, the people who were actually in these positions of ownership through law their position was nowhere near as good as the new the new wealthy, the novo rich, as they called them, uh, these huge industrialists who started buying country properties because those industrialists could buy and sell and they didn't owe anyone anything. Ah, so they weren't stuck. They could they, they were free to to play the market. Yeah, and there were a lot of them. So through the 1700s and early 1800s, that was the peak of the English, the British country house. 1700s, 1700s and 1800s. And the early 1800s. The early 1800s. Yeah. This is okay. when, okay. this was the peak. This was when British, the British Empire was at its peak monetarily. And it's when the Industrial Revolution had begun to make many, many, many wealthy middle class people. Right. And, you know, they were sometimes, these middle class people were sometimes wealthier than the than the aristocracy. Sorry, the, the middle class people are coming from these great english houses or are you saying they that would these buy are they would are- buy up these great english ha- properties because they could it was the equivalent of billionaires today buying up you know super yachts oh i see i see yeah yeah so the middle class are starting to overtake the aristocracy yeah in yeah. wealth yes exactly and um, power i guess yeah but uh basically if we uh we may have jumped the gun a tiny bit there but uh 
before we get to that, because we will talk about the Industrial Revolution and how it had an effect on these houses in both their development and their eventual end, let's just quickly go through something that I think is quite interesting for everyone, which are the ranks of nobility in England. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. let's so do that. So, if you've seen Downton Abbey, you will have seen that the Earl of Grantham is uh, the owner of that estate. Okay. And you'll see all the responsibilities that he has. Then if you look at something like Pride and the Prejudice, which is set at the end of the 1700s, early very early 1800s at latest, and there is debate there, you would see someone like Mr. Darcy and Mr. Bingley. Mr. Darcy owns a huge estate, and that's the exact same system. He is not uh, in the nobility uh, in the noble classes, but he is a lord. I, I know this is really obvious to many people, but it makes me realize why marrying into the right family is so important because it's not like you can make your way up through your own entrepreneurship. You literally have no choice to, you know, change your status in life unless you marry, right? Do you mean if you're part of the aristocracy? No, like if you're if you're slightly under that. Yeah, so that's true until the advent of the Industrial Revolution and then we did see big changes. But still, that was a slow process and then there were only a few very wealthy people from that. Yeah. But there but, was a rising middle class, that's for sure. But I'm thinking like in those series like Bridgerton and, and um, Downton Abbey, m- marrying the right person was so important for the females. Oh, yeah, yeah. There were not just to do with laws and entails and things like that, but to do with your social status. Social status, we don't experience that in the same way today. I mean, we do have wealthy people and poorer people, but we don't have that same extreme level of class system and respect for it that that, that existed then. So it's difficult to transplant ourselves back then. But yes, you're, who you married and your status in society based on that was incredibly impactful on your life. Yeah. And they didn't have... The idea of, you know, making your own money to then have that respect for having made your own money in your own life, I guess, did they? So they didn't have that comparison. They just had like royalty, aristocracy. Yes. And then people underneath. Primarily, yes. Until I would say the end of the 1900s, early 20th century. Uh, Sorry, end of the 1800s, early 20th century. That's when that really started to change, especially after World War One. Yeah, I can imagine that that is a huge area that we need to go into. But we're unfortunately out of time for part one. So listeners, if you wanted to join us for the conversation all about World War One and how that changed everything that we're talking about. And oh, well, I was going to uh, use that as a bit of a lead in to talk about the British noble ranks. I'm going to go through what the five major British noble ranks are and the origins. Nice. Yeah. So if you guys want to join for that, then check out the premium podcast or the academy membership and those that are already active members then we will see you in part two but uh for those uh part one listeners thank you very much ben for taking the time to research that and uh yeah thank you again absolutely not a problem cool all right see you in part two see you in part two We will leave it there for part one of today's episode. Thank you very much for listening up to this point. If you did want to listen to part two and part three of this conversation, then you can head over to the BritishEnglishPodcast.com and check out the premium podcast or academy memberships.
The Premium Podcast gives you access to the full conversation along with extended glossaries, transcripts and flashcards, whereas the Academy gives you all of that plus exclusive videos and audios for the season-based episodes explaining the vocabulary, exampling them, giving you quizzes, writing assignments and weekly speaking classes on Zoom. But if you were just here for part one of this conversation, then I thank you very much for stopping by. I hope you enjoyed the show. Do grab that free worksheet by clicking the link in the show notes. My name's Charlie and I will see you next week on the British English Podcast.